Uh, Let's ask God to help us now understand his word. True and living God, uh, the Father of all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus, uh, we pray in your mercy now that as we think about hard things in our world, you would help us to know Jesus. You would help us to know him as the source of comfort and hope in a world like ours. Our Father, we pray that you would help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and you would help us all to understand it and know Jesus as he is, your Son, our Saviour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Are some of you here of the state murder of these children and think, well, that proves Jesus wasn't born into a fairy tale, but into our real world. The world we live in where children are always suffering and dying at the hands of violent adults, caught up in affairs and conflicts not of their making. And sadly, that's true, isn't it? Boko Haram kidnaps children from their dormitories to wage war against the Nigerian government. A bomb is let off in a market in Kabul and children die there with their parents. Closer to home, a controlling, violent, estranged father in Queensland sets alight his wife and children in their car. Three children die in what is now thought to be a murder-suicide in Tullamarine. Ours is a world where children continue to be the casualties of adults competing for power, trying to ensure their own power and control. And Jesus is born into our world. But others hear the story and just its reading raises some unsettling questions about God. Doesn't God, they think, bear some responsibility for the death of those boys? I mean, he sent the star, and following the star, the wise men came to Jerusalem with their questions about the one-born king of the Jews, and they tipped off Herod. There would have been no deaths without their questions. And God knew what Herod would do, knew what would happen, and warned Joseph, and so made it possible for Jesus to escape. And if God can rescue Jesus... Warn Joseph so that the family heads off to the safety of Egypt. Couldn't he, shouldn't he, have rescued those other children, done something to prevent this atrocity? Why couldn't he have done something else? Why this way, saving one, letting others die? Thinking about those slaughtered boys of Bethlehem and why God has acted and not acted as it's revealed in his word he has, for many of us, taps into the bigger and more general question. 
Why, if God is in control, do these bad things still happen? Why doesn't he just end the violence? Why does he let children keep dying at the hands of wicked adults? And that's not an abstract issue, is it? For some, that question comes from a deep well of grief. For others, from an anguished horror at the cruelty of our world. And when we hear of these atrocities, even if it's not a pressing personal issue for us, people's questionings can plant a seed of doubt about God's goodness in our own hearts and their fault-finding with God can leave us unsettled. So tonight we'll consider together what perhaps you think and what others say God ought to do when faced with the evil of a Herod before looking at what God has done and is doing in response to that evil. And it's always better to put our questions into words, isn't it? Because then we can answer them. And in this case, putting those questions into words will help us to see why what God has done, as opposed to, as opposed to what people think he ought to do, is so much better. And if this is an issue for you, I'd welcome continuing the conversation with you. But you will need to work this evening uh, to stay up, in a sense, uh, with what I'm saying. So when we read what happens, see that it appears these children died as as a consequence of God's action in the world, of the birth of Jesus and the star to mark his birth. One option is to think God should never act if his action will provoke evil people to do wrong. But that's a bit like saying you should never buy a good car because the consequence might be someone stealing it. And we need to be clear, those children died as a consequence of Herod's evil will. God did not command Herod to kill these children. In fact, God has explicitly forbidden their murder. But you say a thief stealing a car is just a possibility. But God knows what Herod will do. So should we not do good things because some will turn it for evil? Say, should we not have a child because it will further embitter someone who can have no children? Should we not teach people to write because some will write lies? If we couldn't do good because others would make it an opportunity to do evil, Well, we'd be imprisoned, wouldn't we, in the evil of other people's hearts. To say God should not act if evil people would respond wickedly to what he does is actually saying God should never act because evil people will twist whatever God does and gives to their own evil ends. It's saying that God should never act, including never act to deal with evil. Never do good. Now, that's not acceptable to God, and it's not something we would want, is it? You see, the problem's not with God's actions, but with the evil in Herod's heart, the evil in human hearts. Well, then, you say, that's true. Evil people will act wickedly, but God should have acted to stop Herod. How? Perhaps he should have done something to prevent the evil consequences of Herod's decision. Give all the parents a warning in a dream so that they can escape, get out of town with their kids. 
or cause the soldiers to get lost on the way to Bethlehem. He did something like that for Elisha. Whatever, Herod and others, yes, they can act wickedly, but God should prevent the evil consequences for others of Herod's actions. But think, why just for those Bethlehem parents? If it's not right for God to rescue Jesus alone, why should it be right for him to rescue these parents alone, of all the parents in the world whose children suffer because of the wickedness of others? Saying God should act to prevent the consequences of Herod's evil actions is saying that really, as a general rule, God should act to stop the bad consequences for others of people's evil actions. That when people say push others off cliffs, God should be there forever putting mattresses at the bottom. Well, let's think that through. Of which actions should God prevent the consequences? Only those with really bad consequences or all actions with bad consequences? So, for example... Every time someone's distracted while driving their car by playing with their phone, God should grab the steering wheel. No, you say that's ridiculous. He should only do it when the inattention might cause a fatality. But why just then? Somebody might be really traumatised by being run into, even if they live. I mean, who wants to live with an acquired brain injury or suffer months of rehab? Okay, you say. Well, God should grab the wheel whenever someone might get seriously hurt. But why stop there? Perhaps the distracted driver is emotionally fragile and the hassle of repair might be overwhelming for them, the straw that breaks the camel's back emotionally, and they have a nervous breakdown that puts them out of action in their family for months, and the children are then traumatised by their parents' emotional absence. When you're saying that God should step in and prevent the bad consequences of Herod's action, you're actually saying that God should stop all the bad consequences of all our actions, that he should be putting the mattresses at the bottom of the cliff, not just for when people push others over, but when we slip or when we jump. But if we were never left with the consequences of our actions, how would we learn? How would we learn to choose the good? If our actions were separated from their consequences, it would soon make us indifferent to whether our actions were good or evil and probably prevent us from confronting what we need to confront, the evil of our own hearts. And if our actions were separated from their consequences, all our actions would lose their moral significance. We would lose our moral significance cease to be people who had the dignity of responsibility and accountability. So while it sounds like it makes sense to demand God step in to stop this or that, to make intermittent interventions to prevent harm, that would actually reduce God to some kind of puppet whose actions are arbitrary at our whim and undermine our humanity. It's not a workable solution to human evil. And the problem would still remain, and that is Herod and his evil will that seeks to preserve his will and defy God's. Now, at this point, some advocate the Rambo solution. God should just step in and blast away the Herods, stop Herod by killing him. But, of course, another Herod 
would then come and probably be worse. And remember, what we say God should do for these boys in Bethlehem, he should do for all. So if this is your position, you're saying that God should remove all Herods, destroy, remove all those who would misuse their power to harm others. So when should God do that? After they've demonstrated their evil, shown their true colours? Surely not. How could one massacre be acceptable? So should God destroy them when they start to think of harming others? But why wait? God knows everything. So aren't we saying that God should destroy them preeminently, preemptively, before they have had any opportunity to do the harm God knows they will do? Delete Herods and people like him from the human inventory. But why stop at Herods? People with a lot of power who can therefore do a lot of harm. Why shouldn't we have God act against anyone who misuses their power? Bullying in the workplace hitting a kid in the playground, cutting someone off in the traffic. And what about someone who just desires to hurt someone else but, well, is restrained perhaps by cowardice or lack of opportunity? And why just those who abuse their power in terms of physical threat or violence? What about those who have power in their tongue, in their eloquence, who say unkind and hurtful things, who manipulate mobs, who deceive? Or those who have power in terms of knowledge, knowledge that allows them to get, say, more than their fair share of the world's resources that perpetrates economic violence. Or the financial power that allows them to impose unfair trading conditions. (coughs) At what level would doing wrong in your eyes, doing wrong to others, become right so that we let those who do it keep living? White lies, petty theft, unkindness masked by humour? Now, I'm sure you see where I'm going. When you want God to remove Herod, aren't you wanting him to destroy all who do evil and wrong because any wrong impoverishes and destroys others? Now, that's going to be a lot of people, isn't it? And it probably includes you. If this is your solution, and it is some people's solution, Tell you what, why don't you get God to send a flood to destroy all the evildoers? Actually, that's something God's already done, isn't it? And he did do it because of violence. I'm determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. He sent the flood, but actually nothing changed, or at least people didn't change. Both before and after the flood, every imagination of their heart, it says, was evil from their youth upwards. To say God should solve the problem of evil by knocking off evil people, people who do wrong, is to actually will your own destruction. Is that your solution? So perhaps some say (coughs) to avoid a world where children suffer, God shouldn't have made people at all. Or he can be faulted for not creating us differently. Why didn't, they say, why didn't God create people who never did wrong? Why did he create people with the qualities they have and the ability to actually be cruel? Now, if we're honest, that's a question we can't answer. We're not God. 
we don't see the full picture. But in creating people as God did, as finite embodied personal spirits who can relate to him and others in freely willed relationships of love, well, he created us a people with wills who could hear his word, who could trust it, who could obey it, who could love. And the possibility of loving relationships, well, actually, that's at the heart, isn't it, of what it is to be human. And for a loving relationship with God is, well, God says it's to actually hear his word, believe it, obey it. Just as communication and trust are a large part of loving each other. But where we can believe, we can also disbelieve. Where we can obey, we can disobey. Where we can love, we can misdirect our love. You say you would have done it differently. But how? And why do you think you know better that you're in a position to judge how God should create? Do you know what would be lost if we were not created free to love and so able to misdirect our love? Do you know what might not be if we were not created to trust and so able to distrust? Do you know what may never come about if we had not been created to obey and so able to disobey? Do you actually know the end from the beginning? Claiming that God should never have created as he did may reinforce a baseless sense of moral superiority in the creature. But a response to evil that suggests the solution is our never being or our total destruction seems no solution at all in a world where we know real evil. Now, at this stage, you might want to throw up your hands and say, look, I know I'm not God, but God is God, and he's meant to be all-knowing and all-powerful, so he should just fix things. Now, that's progress if you really mean it. If you really do acknowledge you are not God, and can acknowledge that because God is all-knowing and all-powerful, he might go about things in ways that may not have occurred to you, ways that might seem strange to you. If you can do that, that's progress. You've moved beyond insisting that God has to prove himself to you by running the universe the way you think it should be run, by doing what makes sense to you, because that God that made sense to you would be an idol, the creation of a creature and unable to help with no more power and insight than its creator. A God who would be no help and leave us hopeless. And that would be hopeless because we need help for evil. Human evil is real and it is grievous and we can't solve it, can we? Thousands of years, yet it persists in every society, even those that think they're enlightened. And when you meet a Herod, see what they do. The problem with getting caught up with what you think God should or shouldn't do is you miss what God has actually done. Well, you say, what has God done to deal with evil in the world? Well, you and I are reading about it in the gospel. 
What he's done is sent his son Jesus into our world, Emmanuel, God with us. He's committed himself to personally dealing with the sorrows of our world. So you say, how is Jesus a response to the Herods of this world? A response to people misusing what they have to harm and mistreat others. I mean, a baby born to poor parents needing to escape from Herod seems so weak and feeble. Oh yes, we know Jesus grew up and like others opposed violence and selfishness in his teaching, taught people to love one another, taught them to love even their enemies, to forgive and not take vengeance, to not seek their own power and privilege but to be ready to serve. And yes, he called for repentance for people to change and commit themselves to doing what he taught. And yes, we know Jesus in his ministry didn't mock or minimise human suffering. He didn't say it was just an illusion or that the problem was our longing for justice and life. No, Jesus took on our suffering and he healed and restored. But Jesus didn't raise a righteous army to wreak vengeance, did he? He left the Herods in place. So how does Jesus make a difference? I mean, he still looks pretty weak teaching through Galilee against the might of Herod and his kind. In fact, his ministry had no impact on Herod and his like, those with power in our world. Herod's son Antipas, who ruled in Galilee when Jesus ministered, just saw, we see in Luke 23, just saw Jesus as potential entertainment, a wonder worker. While Pilate, the Roman governor, Just saw him as a political difficulty. Initially, they ignore him, and when it becomes necessary for the preservation of their power, they kill Jesus. Jesus, whom they say is innocent of any crime, they crucify him. So Jesus becomes the victim of power used for political ends, power to keep the rulers, whether it was the Jewish authorities or the Roman governor, in power. You see, at the end of the story, Jesus dies for the same reason as those children were killed, those in power seeking to stay in power. Having once escaped Herod, he finally suffers the injustice and cruelty of the reign of the Herods of this world. If Jesus is God's response to the evil of human power misused, on that Good Friday it seems so weak. Now, some at this point say, well, yes, but isn't it good that Jesus knows our suffering, that he's not indifferent, not removed, not distant from what we go through? Isn't it good that we can know for sure he knows us and can sympathise with our powerlessness and grief? But if that is all that is happening in Jesus' suffering and death, it's not enough, is it? We want something done about the Herod, something done about the evil in the world. Sympathy alone is not enough. Uh, When I started medicine, I was very sympathetic to people who had stomach bugs who were vomiting. When that stale, acidic smell came up through my nostrils and hit the back of my throat, I would start to gag. And unless I left the room, worse would follow. You see, I had sympathetic vomiting. That's what it's called. And it was no help to my patients at all to know I was experiencing the same thing as them, that I sympathised 
In fact, sympathy alone was useless. In the end, if all we get from God is a sympathetic Jesus who knows what it feels like to be one of us, it's useless. But a sympathetic Jesus is not all we get. The cross seems so weak, so powerless before human power. But the gospel tells us much more is happening on the cross than Jesus' removal as an irritant to those in power. It tells us Christ was there dying for our sins, that his death was purposeful, that he was buried, a real death, and that he rose from the dead. That death was not the end for Jesus, that his was a real victory over death. And when we believe the gospel, (coughs) accept it as it is. True, that's right, true. Jesus is alive. We have the eyewitness accounts. He was seen, touched, spoken with, eaten with, alive in the body in which he'd been killed. When we believe the gospel, accept it as it is, true. What seems so weak is revealed as the power of God, the power of God that ensures the end of all human wickedness and more. You see, in the events of Easter, we see God keeping his word, his word of judgment on sin. In showing mercy in Jesus dying for sinners, that word that says sin deserves death is kept, for sin is punished in the death of Jesus. See, the crucifixion tells us that that word that says sin deserves death will always be kept and there will be no overlooking of sin and our sin will either be punished in Christ or we will bear its punishment ourselves. God's committed to that word. Oh, and in the crucifixion and resurrection, we see God keeping his word of the promise of salvation. For in believing the gospel, sinners are forgiven as they trust the Lord Jesus through the death of Jesus. They're joined to him on the cross in his death and they are reconciled to God. They find peace with God through trusting him. But that promised salvation is a big salvation. It's not just about saving you and me. It's a promise of resurrection and new creation, a new creation where evil will be removed forever, where there'll be life without hurt or wrong, lies or death. And yes, in the events of Easter, God is keeping his word of the promise of a saviour, a king who will defeat all the enemies of God and his people. On the cross, Jesus has done that. He has cast down the devil and destroyed his power, He set his people free from the power of sin and the judgment of the law and he is guaranteed in his own resurrection their resurrection, their sharing in his triumph over death. The events of Easter ensure the judgment of evil. More, they ensure the end of all evil in the return of the living Lord Jesus. For the crucified and risen Jesus is triumphant over the devil and his lies and murder and over those who embrace in their lies hatred and murder, the devil's rule. And this triumph is complete. For they are exposed despite appearances 
as exposed in the crucifixion, as powerless to stop God doing what he says. You see, in killing Jesus, his enemies have guaranteed their own destruction. Jesus has triumphed over evil through their evil. Now think for a minute of the extent of his victory. It is justice from injustice. For the innocent Jesus is vindicated in the resurrection and made the just judge of all. It's life from death, not more of the same kind of life with its grief and pain and sickness, but deathless, immortal life, life where death has no power, and its truth demonstrated where lies reign. For through those lies, the lies that accuse Jesus and condemn Jesus, the words of Jesus that he would die and then be raised, are shown to be the words of God, never to be broken, that his word really is light in our darkness. So notice has been given. The eviction, their eviction of the powers of evil from God's creation is certain. And it just awaits the time God has set to reveal his son that crucified Jesus as the Lord of glory. More, the cross guarantees redemption. Sinners like you and I and all who repent and believe are not now abandoned, condemned, left as slaves to our own evil hearts, to our sin. We are transformed now by the powerful spirit of God. The crucified and risen Jesus can do what no punishment can do. He can give a new heart. He can make the wicked good. He can transform his followers so they'll be light in a dark world, salt in a world that is always going off. But more, the cross guarantees the redemption of our time. For in the cross and resurrection, we see our saving God has an almighty power and wisdom that can take an evil act and make it at the same time the best act life-giving, mercy-bringing, truth-establishing. This, what God does in Jesus on the cross, is the guarantee that all things will work for good for those who love the Lord and that there will be a day when every tear will be wiped away. Now, have you thought about that? You see, the cross is saying more than that God brings good from evil. Our tears will be wiped away because we'll be brought to see all of the events of our lives, even the most terrible, as Scripture teaches us to see the cross. See, what do we see in the cross? Well, we see that where things that the evil meant, where, where things that the evil meant for evil, The Lord in his wisdom and power has meant for good and that it is his good that is done. Right? That things that meant the evil meant for evil. The Lord in his wisdom and power meant for good and that it was his goodwill that was done. You see, the tears will be wiped away by coming to understand the place of the cause of those tears 
in the good purpose of the good God for his people. You see, the disciples' tears were wiped away by the same act that caused them, the death of Jesus, when they saw that their God's power and wisdom was at work to save them. That's right. It wasn't just the resurrection that wiped away their tears. The resurrection revealed to them the truth of the cross, but the resurrection alone would have been terror without Jesus' death for sin. Think of it. To meet as risen almighty king, the one you had abandoned, the one you had failed. Well, that would be terror, wouldn't it? Unless this risen king was gracious and merciful and in his grace had atoned for your sin, even the sin of abandoning him of faithlessness. What caused those tears to be wiped away was exactly the same thing that caused their tears in the first place. Abusing power to stay in power by killing the innocent Jesus was wicked. But his death is also good, isn't it? It's the best. The wickedness came from the wickedness of human wills. The goodness from our God's overwhelming, incomparable goodness and wisdom and power. And what the scripture shows to be true of the cross will one day be revealed as true of all of our lives, all redeemed by Jesus' death and resurrection to our great humbling, because that will include even the things we're ashamed of, and to his eternal praise as the almighty, good and faithful God. There's such a rich hope for those who believe the gospel, that he died for our sins, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus was raised. Hope of eternal life, hope of life without evil, hope of redemption of our lives. Of course, without believing the gospel, Jesus' death is just another horror in the world's litany of horrors that we can never redeem. But the gospel is true. It is the living God's gospel, the royal proclamation of the holy, just, righteous, merciful, faithful, wise, almighty God the proclamation of the victory of his son, Jesus, God with us. And with the gospel, he gives to a world that knows the grief of never-ending Herod's hope. Hope not of the end of creation, but of a new creation where there will be no evil. Hope not of death, but of life. Hope of tears gone forever. One rescued baby amongst the multitude who have died. One crucified innocent amongst all the executed, so weak but so powerful because this is Jesus, God with us. God come to save his people by destroying the evil one, defeating death, exposing the lie, forgiving our sin. Born into the real world, to be the real world saviour, rescued to rescue all who believe, to give hope in our real world. See, when you look at evil in our world, you can find fault, 
pretend you know how God ought to act or that you would do better, though I wonder if people who know you would ever agree, you can find fault and pretend. Or you can look at what God has done in sending his son into the world and confess that God is more radical in his intolerance of evil, more radical in his determination to remove it, more radical in his commitment to life, to human life, than you. That God is more wise and powerful than you can imagine and so much better, good through and through in all he does. You can confess that and humble yourself before him and confess with joy that Jesus, that rescued baby, that man hanging on the cross is Lord and Lord forever. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and in our sad world want real hope, a hope that's not just wishful thinking, a real hope which is a hope for creation, a hope marked by justice. If you want truth, a word you can rely on, if you want goodness, deep, rich, enduring goodness that's not overwhelmed or extinguished by human folly or cruelty, come to Jesus. He is the very opposite of every heretic. Jesus, who wins by humbling himself to death, who ascends to rule by the power of an indestructible life, not the power of killing others. Come to Jesus. He lives. And ask him to forgive you your love of self, your selfishness that uses others and breaks God's good commands. Ask him to forgive you and give you hope. And if you're a believer, don't be easily shaken by people finding fault with God, asking what he is doing about this or that tragedy. The living God has acted to end evil and has guaranteed both its judgment and its end in the death and resurrection of his son and the triumph of his good purpose will be revealed one day in the return of his son. When you are confronted as we are by evil, whether in our own suffering, and Jesus, remember, said his followers would suffer in this world, whether in our own suffering or that of others, turn to your Lord Jesus and think on him. You see, there's so much we cannot know about what goes on in our world and why, but we do know that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Especially think on the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus to be refreshed in the goodness, might and wisdom of our God who has given the world a saviour. Think on him and be strengthened in your hope for in the cross as you are joined to Jesus by faith at peace with God, you will know your own suffering to be purposeful as his was, working that good that the almighty and wise and loving God works for his people in all things, even in the worst things. You'll be strengthened in hope and you'll be assured of a glorious outcome 
when our God raises you with the Christ who suffers and wipes every tear from our eye as we see all our lives as the good which God works in all things. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is a world in which we know grief and in which we are sad to confess we cause grief. But we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that in his being so different, in humbling himself, not grasping for power, we thank you that in humbling himself to death, death on the cross, he has brought us forgiveness for our sin. And he has ensured the triumph of your good purpose, the reign of justice and righteousness in life. We thank you for him. And we pray that as we confess he is Lord, we will grow in our knowledge of him, that we would think deeply on the cross and that we would have our minds transformed to know you as the good, almighty, just and all-wise God and to trust you as you deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.